Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Wyoming. I'm Mark Hamilton, your host. Today we'll take a look at our winter weather and the storm of 49. We'll also look at Wyoming agriculture. We'll talk about sports. We'll have our ode to oil. And finally, we'll talk about the hayfield fight. Also, remember, next week will be our Christmas show. Be sure to tune in. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoy the show. Taking a look at Wyoming weather here on the 12th day of December, around 12 o'clock, just at lunchtime, and definitely it is socked in outside, can't see very far. A light snow is starting to come down. All of our forecasts, we are in a morning area here in Hot Springs County. Looks like we could get anywhere from 10 to 14 inches of snow. The biggest concern I have is the amount of wind we can have, which will cause some difficult travel with drifts and also visibility is always an issue this uh, time of year. And it was funny, this morning I was watching on YouTube, I turned it on early, and one of the first videos that came up was the blizzard of 49 which was a doozy we had here in the state of Wyoming. From the wildhistory.org, the notorious blizzard of 1949 by Rebecca Hine. A cold raging wind drove snow so hard that it scoured the eyes and nostrils like sand. 21-year-old Merle Hine and his father were struggling to drive their cattle into their barn, but ice had frozen over the animals' eyes, blinding them. Handling their cattle in whiteout conditions near their ranch house in northern Goshen County, Wyoming, had proven so difficult that Han's father decided to leave them where they were clustered by the south end of the barn. There was no entrance on that side for the herd, so the men cut a hole. Then, after all the effort, the cattle refused to go in. Meanwhile, in Pine Bluffs, Wyoming, at least two trains were stuck. The passengers and crew flooded the small towns, straining hotels, cafes, and private homes to bursting. All across Southeast Wyoming, northern Colorado, western South Dakota, and western Nebraska. Hundreds of people risked their lives in the storm to search for stranded motorists, missing neighbors, or family members. The blizzard started on Sunday, January 2, 1949, and proved the worst of the century. The first storm would be followed by two more months of snow and bitter cold. The National Weather Service eventually reported 12 people dead in Wyoming after the first storm. 28 more died in western South Dakota, Colorado, and Nebraska. On March 1st, after the federal government had completed rescue operations, the official death toll for the region was 76. Unofficial estimates are somewhat higher. The first Sunday, a dark cloud advancing from the northwest was like hitting a wall. Bill Miskums later recalls, he first ran into the storm a few miles from his family ranch, 14 miles northwest of LaGrange, Wyoming. Temperatures dropped from the mid-30s in the, a- in the afternoon to 10 below or colder by evening. Wind gusts to 66 miles per hour and snow blew everywhere. Within hours, roads were impassable. Cars stuck in ditches or were buried under 10-foot drifts. People began to worry about loved ones traveling home after the holidays. While many ranchers were setting out on the usual routine, but suddenly dangerous trek to feed and water their cattle and sheep, sometimes pastured miles away. Given that some people got lost in the storm just trying to get back from their house to a nearby corral or barn, these journeys could turn deadly. Many travelers struggled from their disabled cars to the nearest ranch house, something they would be strongly advised against doing now. At the houses, they were taken in along with other strangers. 
Some private dwellings were so crowded that there wasn't enough room for all to sleep at once. Some stood while others rested, taking turns. By Wednesday afternoon, January 5th, the sky was clear and sunny, but hardships continued because of the wind, and it just didn't let up. More storms piled on more and more snow through the middle of February. Snow plows would clear the road or railroad tracks, but overnight the wind again packed snow into just cleared spaces. Drifts, some as high as 20 feet, were packed so hard that crews used dynamite to break them up. The toll in human and animal suffering was immense. People whose limbs froze were lucky if they lost only a few fingers or toes. During the first blizzard, a man left his wife and baby in their car to search for help. He died after falling off a snowdrift just three-quarters of a mile from the Fred E. Warren Ranch House in southeast Wyoming. Cattle and sheep suffocated when they were buried in the drifts or when their nostrils filled with the dense, grainy snow. Many that survived the initial onslaught later had to be put down because their feet and legs had frozen. In some cases, milk cows, teats, and bull's testicles froze off. We lost our whole herd, recalls Alice Kimball, who was 21 at the time, and ranched with her husband near Deer Creek, 8 miles south of Glenrock, Wyoming. I think they died of pneumonia. State and federal agencies launched various relief efforts, ultimately referred to as Operation Snowbound. On the first day of the storm, the Wyoming National Guard's 187th Fighter Squadron began ground operations, including by Tuesday, January 4th, when the storm was still raging, a team of men, probably on snowshoes, who hand-pulled a toboggan load of food to a family north of Cheyenne. The Civil Air Patrol, National Guard, and many small private planes were soon flying, delivering food and medicine. On January 5th, A.G. Crane, acting governor since Lester Hunt had been elected to the U.S. Senate previous December, declared a state of emergency and appointed the Laramie County chapter of the American Red Cross as coordinator for the agencies involved in rescue and relief. A later proclamation by Crane supported the legislature's creation of the Wyoming Emergency Relief Board on January 19th of 1949. Lawmakers appropriated 200000 and later added 500000 by January 26, due to continued storms and high winds, the task of clearing the roads, airlifting supplies, rescuing stranded travelers, and carrying doctors to sick or frozen people, or transporting patients to hospitals, had overburdened state agencies, county relief boards, and local volunteers. So state officials asked the federal government for help. When President Truman declared the snowbound western states disaster areas were the worst sectors of Nebraska, South Dakota, and Wyoming, Designated as special distress areas, Truman authorized a total of 700,000, which of Wyoming received 125,000. At the peak of Wyoming operations, about 600 pieces of snowmoving equipment were on the roads. The total rescue effort involved countless volunteers and local agencies, plus at least 10 major state and federal agencies from the U.S. Army to the National Park Service. Private businesses, including railroad and oil companies, also lent manpower and heavy equipment to the work. Radio stations in Cheyenne, Rollins, Sheridan, and Casper, with special permission for the Federal Communication Commission, broadcast individual pleas for help. So many people called the highway department to ask if their loved ones had been found that officials installed a separate line with an unpublished number, just so they could communicate with their staff and carry on their work. Operation Haleft began on January 28th when the U.S. Air Force flew a total of about 550 tons of hay from from Kansas and Colorado to Casper, Wyoming. Feed was also delivered to other parts of Wyoming, with the bales sometimes dropped on the range 
near stranded cattle and sometimes delivered to towns for convoys to isolated ranches. The Wyoming Game and Fish Department began emergency feeding of deer, elk, and antelope in early January and continued through the first part of March. About 21,000 animals were given hay, cottonseed cake, and alfalfa pellets. Sometimes hay bales were delivered on a toboggan that men pulled by hand because roads were impassable for vehicles. Game birds were also fed corn and small grains. A survey of approximately 1,000 farmers and ranchers completed in early June of 1949 reported livestock losses for the hardest-hit counties, Fremont, Sweetwater, Carbon, Natrona, Johnson, Campbell, Crook, Weston, Converse, Goshen, Albany, Laramie, Niobrara, and Platte. Of this 14-county population of 686,000 cattle, 20,000 were estimated dead, and out of a 1.5 million sheep, 100,000 dead. Spring breeding also suffered because many bulls were sterile, and in general, livestock was too weak and depleted. Fortunately, gradual spring thaws prevented major floods and furnished abundant water for irrigation. And despite the high mortality rate in livestock, not all animals buried in the drifts died. Bill Frazier, a Pine Bluffs resident at the time, reported that three months after the storm, a farmer near Albin dug up a pig out of a snowbank still alive. Just some amazing stories on what the people went through during that eventful storm, the blizzard of 49. Looking at Wyoming agriculture, all of our farmers here in the state of Wyoming are pretty much done. There's still people out chopping corn, uh, working on corn right now, but everything else, most of the rest of the crops are taken care of. People have cattle on aftermath in most areas in the basin. A lot of cattle on feed right now in a, in a lot of areas throughout the state. It's a time when you definitely want to secure your feed sources for the winter. want to make sure that you're situated to make it through uh, three months of potentially a little tougher temperatures until we start moderating in the spring. But one thing the snow is doing is we get snow, it's going to help with our grazing. We had a good grazing year in a lot of spots here in the state, depending on the weather, but there was a lot of green grass for quite some time. Right now, the prices are pretty well staying where they are. Cattle numbers are down right now. And of course, we're seeing a lot, saw a lot, I should say, saying we've seen it, a lot of reduction in herd sizes due to some of the pricing, due to some of the conditions in other parts of the country. So right now, the most of their livestock producers are going to have a couple, few sleepless nights, making sure that they've got animals situated, got them moved into a spot where they don't get run into some problems getting out into some of those high winds and, and snows and stuff can be a little bit treacherous for those uh, cattle. And depending on what you have, if you've got maybe a little late calving season, if you're in a fall calving program, where you've got some young ones, it can be a little bit trying for the, those uh, animals too. But just making sure they have feed and some water, and uh, hopefully we can get through these next few days, get a little bit of moderation in some temperatures. But again, livestock is tough time of year for these people. You know, they start to plan through the late December, and people getting into January, February, the early calvers will start facing those problems that you run into with calving. But again, the livestock community is a resilient bunch here in our state of Wyoming. But they'll be out and about and taking care of those animals. Taking a look at Wyoming sports, the 
Wyoming Cowboys are still doing bowl prep for their bowl game they have here in Tucson at the end of the month, the Barstool Sports Arizona Bowl. Also, it's been kind of a little quiet on some of the transfers that we talked about, some players that transferred out, but it seems like it's quieted down a little bit right now, so we'll keep an eye on that. Basketball is going on. The Wyoming Cowboys are starting to play a little better basketball. We'll get into that a little bit deeper after the first of the year when they get into conference play. High school sports got their first round of basketball games are in the books from over the weekend from a lot of tournament play. So again, a busy time in the state of Wyoming. One other thing we'd like to talk about today is the passing of Coach Mike Leach. A lot of people have probably heard it on the news and if you're any type of a sports fan, you've seen it on all the sports shows. I followed a lot of stuff on YouTube and just the admiration and and just endless amount of stories about Mike Leach and why I bring it up here on our show today. Mike Leach was from Cody, Wyoming. He graduated from Cody High School and he ended up going on to his career uh, through BYU with an undergrad and then went to Pepperdine to get a law degree and then started coaching. So he was kind of a rarity and he just was a, a spirit like no, none other. And I heard in a show today talking to a person from Mississippi State. They were talking about Mike and, and why he, he really did like Sarksville. And that's where in, in Mississippi, where Mississippi State is located. And he said it reminded him of the people down here were a lot like the people in Wyoming. And it really hit home when I heard that. Uh, we are definitely people in Wyoming are a kindred spirit. We're, we're our own we drive our own ships. We drive our own lives in front of us. We are just a different lot. And Mike Leach was, was part of that lot. He was definitely a different person. He didn't worry about what other people thought. He did his thing, but he was a caring person, and he always had time for everybody. I guess it comes back to what we talk about. That's why we live in Wyoming, because of the life we have here and the type of people we have here in our state of Wyoming. That's something that we'll all cherish forever. And today, we definitely will miss a Wyomingite, Cody's Mike Leach, with his passing at the age of 61. Condolences go out to his wife and his family, and I know he'll be sorely missed here in the state of Wyoming. Today, I'd like to share a poem that I found, and this comes from a publication from the Less Standard of August 1st of 1919, Lusk, Wyoming, and the Less Standard paper, and it's called An Ode to Petroleum, and the author is unknown. I am the blood of the earth, the fount of prosperity, flowing through fortune's fields into the treasure house of courage and industry. I have transformed humble wage earners to wealth kings. The magic of chemists revealed my hidden secrets and unleashed my mighty power. The sciences, arts, mechanics, and professions pay me homage. Merchant princesses, as well as humblest laborers, are my servitors. My advent awakened invention, stimulation, and mechanical progress, and put the motion and the hum into the wheels of industry. Enables Earth's children to outclass the eagle and fly to dizzy heights in incomparable distances. Having already spanned the almighty Atlantic in day's time, and as yet, I only am an infant. I have made it possible for man to explore the depths of the earth and its great oceans, made nature respond with more beautiful crops, lifted irksome burdens off the backs of the worthy tillers of the soil. Here the tired horses neigh, a welcome to the farm tractor, made alive and ready to serve by my spirit. The city and the country shake hands together now, for with my breath in your auto, distance is short to pleasure jaunts. Lovers coo behind me. Likewise, thrift delights in my speed and strength. I am Aladdin's lamp multiplied a millionfold. 
to lighten the modern world. Without me, nature would be asleep, and the wheels of progress muffled or paralyzed. A pall of stagnation descend upon us. So appreciate me. Now that's an outstanding ode to petroleum. It may be something that we need to relate to to where we are today. Even though that was written a hundred years ago, it still holds true. And that's why I question these people that think we're going to shut down our industry. Right now, 79% of our energy is provided by fossil fuels. And so if we suddenly would take that 79% of that fossil fuels and, and shut them down, what would we have? We would have an absolute collapse of our economy economy, collapse of the world, the amount of people that would perish would be astronomical. And finally today in our history section, we want to continue on where we were last week. We were talking about Fort C.F. Smith. We want to talk a little bit more about the Hayfield fight. And of course, this is from the nationalparkservice.gov park home where we found this story. The Hayfield fight. Thursday, August 1st, 1867 was a busy day at Fort C.F. Smith. Before daybreak, Captain Gordon turned out his horse soldiers to guard the Wells Fargo and Company wagon train and wood detail that was sent up near Lime Kiln Creek. As the detail returned to the fort, Indians were spotted. They followed the train closely back to the fort but did not attack. The haycutters were not as fortunate. Richards, the civilian haycutting contractor, started cutting hay early that morning. The scene of the operation was in the Bighorn Valley, about two and a half miles northeast of the fort. As a place of defense, a fortified corral was erected on the left bank of Warman Creek, about 40 feet from the stream. The corral measured 100 by 60 foot. Upright posts were placed in pairs at six foot intervals along the logs. Heavy pole stringers were secured to the posts halfway up and at the top. Green willow branches with their leaves left on were laced in between the stringers. As the branches dried, they shrunk, forming a very dense barrier between the stringers. On the south side, a wagon running gear were placed in the entrance and the wheels were chained to the entrance post at night. Inside the corral, on the west wall, were four wagon boxes in a row with their bows and canvas tops. Three military tents were pitched north of the wagon boxes. A line to which the livestock were tethered at night ran the length of the corral north to south. The field kitchen stood just outside its southwest corner. This location, though ideal for harvesting hay, had one significant disadvantage. It could not be seen or heard from the fort. Nineteen soldiers and six civilians occupied the hay corral that morning. A man by the name of Sigmund Sternberg of Company G was in charge of the armed guard at the corral. He was a veteran of the Prussian and Union armies, and he had only been at Fort C. F. Smith for seven days when he was appointed to take charge of the soldiers in the hayfield. The soldiers he commanded were armed with the recently issued Allen-modified Springfield breech-loading rifles, and the civilians had either Spencer or Henry repeating rifles and revolvers. The Sioux warriors had no knowledge of these weapons. August 1st began as any other day. After breakfast, the mowers were hard at work cutting hay, and the soldiers took up their guard positions. About mid-morning, the men at the corral heard shots down in the valley where the hares were at work. A few moments later, the hares came thundering back to the corral with several warriors close behind. At the first, the Sioux warriors made several dashes at the corral, then fell back, trying to entice the soldiers out of the corral and into an ambush. Lieutenant Sternberg refused to fall for this rouge and kept his men employed strengthening the defenses. 
The warriors realized that their tactics were not working, so they withdrew and regrouped. Later, they made a cautious approach from the northeast. The haycutters and soldiers, seeing the warriors approaching, threw themselves on the ground behind the fence and the wagon boxes. Sternberg, a veteran in many battles, refused to fight on his belly. He drew his revolver and stood tall. The warriors galloped, yelling and whooping, up the valley towards the corral. They were met with a destructive, sweeping volley of gunfire. The charge split in two sections, one group going to the east, the other to the west of the corrals. A desperate fight now ensued. The Indians swept close to the corrals and showered the defenders with arrows. Lieutenant Sternberg, who stood tall, was shot in the head and killed. He was the first casualty of the fight. After Sergeant James Norton was wounded, Don A. Colvin, a civilian, took charge of the fight. He called for everyone to stay on the ground and fight from behind the lower log. During this action, Private Navin met his end as one of the warriors hit his mark. Their initial attack repulsed the Indians as they took up sniping positions on the bluffs to the southeast and in the willows that lined Warman Creek. The Indians now set fire to the dried hay around the corral. Private Lockhart recalled that this tactic almost succeeded. The fire came in rolling billows like the waves of the ocean, and the Indians whooping behind. When it arrived within 20 feet of the barricade, it stopped, as though arrested by supernatural power. The flames arose to a perpendicular height of at least 40 feet, made one or two undauntating movements, and were extinguished with a spanking slap. The wind, the succeeding instant, carried the smoke of the smoldering grass from the provincially saved encampment. The Indians used their cover to retrieve their dead and wounded. Then they made their second attack. Two defenders were wounded during this assault. J.M. Hollister was severely wounded in the chest and died the next day, and Sergeant Norton was again wounded in the shoulder. After the second repulse, the warriors resumed sniping. For reasons unknown, the fighting ceased, and the defenders used this time to fetch water from the Warman Creek. Sniping resumed, and an Indian, perhaps a chief, rode up to the east side of the stream and was killed. Warriors made two mid-afternoon charges, sweeping down the bluffs south of the strong point. The Indians galloped back and forth along the west side of the corral. During this time, a warrior, believed to be a medicine man, was shot by George Duncan. He was rescued by several warriors and carried back to their camp. The final attack was delivered against the south side of the corral. Civilian Coven, anticipating this, and reinforced the south wall. The warriors attacked on foot. They crossed Warman Creek, beat through the willows, and began to cross the few feet of open ground to the corrals. The defenders held their fire until all the Indians were out of the dense brush. Coven fired first, and the others followed suit. The leader, believed to be a Minikochu chief, was killed, and several of his warriors were sent sprawling. Private Bradley now volunteered to ride to the fort for help. Although chased by several hostiles, he made it to the fort just after Captain Burroughs had moved out with Company G, Colonel Bradley. Bradley now ordered Lieutenant Fenton to reinforce Burroughs with a detachment of Company H and a mountain howitzer. They reached the corral at sundown. It was discovered that 19 of the 22 mules that had been killed or wounded, therefore only two wagons could be used, and all the mowing machines had to be abandoned. The two wagons were loaded with the wounded and the quartermaster stores. While the wagons were being loaded, Fenton soldiers skirmished with the Indians, and as soon as they were ready to roll, Burroughs scattered them with the howitzer. Only one half was made on the return march, and that occurred when the mountain howitzer had to be unlimbered to shell the Indians who were on the bluff above the wagon train. The column finally reached the fort at 8.30 p.m.
During the last days after the fight, Lieutenant Sternberg, Private Nalvin, J.G. Hollister were laid to rest in the cemetery. Three days later, on August 5th, Lieutenant Fenton, with 50 men and a mountain howitzer, reestablished the hay corral in the valley. The soldiers were delighted that the Indians had not destroyed the wagon and mowers that were left behind. The hang operations resumed without further incident. Less than a year later, on July 29, 1868, Fort C.F. Smith and the hay corrals were abandoned. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy our podcast. As per the Code of the West, we ride for the brand, and we ride for Wyoming.